episode 24 of the Bearded Carcast. We're at Winthrop University. Two people have beards, one does not. I'm the one without the beard. You're in the minority. I'm in the minority. We have a quorum, I think. And speaking <laughs> of minority, our guest today, Ken Halpin, there, there's a big rumor. Are you a minority buyer of the Carolina Panthers? Um, I checked my bank account before I made my proposal. It wasn't quite sufficient to meet, so no, I did not enter that pool. Um, I am out as a prospective minority owner for them or any professional franchise. Have you taken interest in the process of the sale of the Panthers as someone in sports and obviously your job as athletic director at Winthrop has a sales component and a money management component. Have you been interested in what's gone on with the Panthers? Um, I've been interested, but I would say for a different reason. What I think is so powerful about the concept of the Carolina Panthers, and I've thought this since before I moved here, it's in a weird way, and forgive me for saying this, um, it's not that different than the Seattle Seahawks. I grew up in Oregon, and Oregon doesn't have an NFL team. So the Seahawks have, in a way, embraced themselves as the Pacific Northwest's team, sure. not just the state of Washington's team. Um, and this is the same a little bit in the NBA for the Portland Trailblazers. A lot of Washingtonians uh, are starting to root for the Trailblazers because the Sonics are gone. The way that it became the Carolina Panthers and not the Charlotte Panthers and not the North Carolina Panthers intentionally to capture two states as one entity, that's the piece I think is powerful um, because we do live, you know, Winthrop Athletics were a very small sliver in the sporting index in the Carolinas and in the South. Um, and so when any team does well, you know, sport tourism gets more exciting. Um, and so, yeah, I think that piece is, is intriguing. And then, you know, just to be frankly honest, there are folks involved with, with the, the process who live where we live and who um, eat where we eat and, and, do life where we do life, and those are people we're developing relationships with. And so it's a, the decisions that they make affect our community and affect our brand. And so, yeah, I keep tabs on it as best as I can and uh, just evaluate where it goes. But uh, to some extent, my involvement stays at spectatorship. <laughs> Ken Halpin, the athletic director here at Winthrop University. I am Mike Pacheco, Dave Friedman, and this is the Bearded Car Cast. And we really wanted to get a talk with you kind of in the off season, if you will, for us. I know you still have uh, the, the spring sports kind of mm -hmm. still wrapping up, but it's been, um, I guess, we're heading into the year three for you. What, what's the first couple of years been like? Uh, spectacular. We just had friends visiting this past weekend for Oregon, and we, we like to joke, you know, every now and then uh, we have friends from the Northwest saying, hey, are you guys homesick at all? And our response is, Sorry, not even a little bit. Um, we, we think life here has been spectacular. My wife and I, my children love it. Um, you know, it's it's early May, and we got in the river a little bit yeah. over the weekend. So it's been spectacular. Um, as far as, you know, the, the spring season wrapping up, uh, I like to say in our, on our administrative staff, we really embrace the fact that administratively the summer is really our in-season. That's when we gear up for um, – uh, new donor opportunities, sponsorship opportunities, ticket renewals, making sure that we're prepared to receive our athletes in the fall and best prepare them for their academic performance, best prepare them for their community service experiences and their progress towards degree and, and work after college. Um, so so we, really, we really embrace sort of peaking in the summer as everything sort of changes in, in the fall and the spring. In the fall and the spring, we're more reacting uh, quite a bit. But nope, uh, Life in the Carolinas has been spectacular, and we uh, 
we, we've been enjoying it. And you get extra sunlight uh, later in the well, day, too. Which means a lot of extra sunblock. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so I borrowed a, I think I'll borrow a line from Jim Gaffigan. My wife and I, we were raising vampires. <laughs> and so we have to we have to bathe the children in sunblock a few days before we go out. So <laughs> Last week on our podcast, we talked about podcasts, a podcast about podcasts, if you will. <laughs> you are very into kind of modern marketing and kind of innovative individual ideas and you talk about now coming into your main season getting ready for the fall and getting ready for the winter what are some of the things in the next five or ten years not necessarily that Winthrop is going to see but that you're seeing in that spectrum how is the industry going it's a great question and I mean I appreciate you describing that way I don't think of myself as a marketing mind, so to speak. When I read, when I listen to various podcasts, when I try to learn, I, I don't focus on marketing conceptually as much as I try and consume things that will inspire me to look at things differently. And, and, and if anything, you know, the core of differentiation is being different. And so if you want to explore solutions, you know, you don't want to be different just to be different. You want to differentiate for a competitive advantage of some sort. I think that's that's kind of what drives how I evaluate what I explore. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, in looking at the – I mean, think about news that – what's the headline that just came out literally today? Sports gambling is now legal yeah. in every state. And how does that impact the NCAA? Now, Frank, that's an example. That's one I, I – just off my first cuff, I, I get that it's out there and, and it can tempt a lot of people towards, um, you know, exploring things. But from our perspective, it's no different than when I lived in the state of Washington and marijuana was legalized. Mm -hmm. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's approved by the NC2A. And we're the NC2A is our governing body. And so we, we adhere to those rules. And so it can be legal all you want. That doesn't mean that we're allowing it. No different than there are things that are legal, but school policy, team policy, right. you know, there, there are lot of examples where you have more restrictive um, uh, rules tied to localized governing sets versus your federal state. So, so that's a big one. Um, I think, you know, it's so commonplace now. It feels commonplace to talk about um, young people and how to get their attention. And I think uh, a colleague of mine shared an article uh, that was produced after the Southwest Airline incident of the, that um, they had to emergency land a plane. And there was a picture that came out of two younger passengers holding the, the oxygen masks, clearly not knowing what to do with them. And the premise of the article was not, oh, look at these two young people who don't know what they're doing. And I think that's a, a common mindset right now yeah. is, oh, these millennials, oh, these Gen Yers and these iGeners and these screenagers, as yes. you said earlier. Um, I think it's too simplistic to fall into criticizing them and expecting them to change. The fact of the matter is that is reality. And so the point of this article was, you know, younger people today receive more information than the three of us combined did when we were children. And I'm not saying I'm old. I'm just saying, like, it's, it's mo moving so rapidly that today the amount of information a young person receives is so significant that they don't learn everything that's presented to them. They learn based on a need-to-know basis. And so as you're talking about, and, and that doesn't get, provide a solution in the airline example, but it's some, to some extent, it challenges us to think about how do we take all of the information that we have at our disposal and reduce it down to what's relevant for the, for the audience that we're trying to reach and make sure that we minimize the volume of content and maximize the value of content when we try and communicate and connect. So then as we go through this offseason, we spend all our time talking about like the, you know, when you're 
emailing with people across campus. Like the second you get past three sentences, pick up the phone. There are way too many yeah. emails going on for us to make the email any longer. Just how do we how do we dial down into relevant, valuable content, not just, you know, we, we cannot allow ourselves to end up with, well, I put it in the email. Yeah, well, there were 82 other things in the email too, and I didn't have time to read all of it because I had, you know, so many other emails. We need to be understanding of what information is relevant. So, um if you talk about trends, I think a huge one that I'm fascinated by, um, just recently, in fact, incorporated it into our class uh, that President Mahoney and I teach. I think esports is a really unique, mm -hmm. and, and it's a non-traditional sport because it's using technology to remove the, the person from the actual action. Um, but the industry is fascinating. Um, and I think a statistic, uh, approximately 47 million people tuned in to watch the 2016 League of Legends championship while the AFC Championship that year reached 35 million households. I realize it's not apples to apples, but it, it's a, those are big numbers. Will eSports be a Division One sport? Great question. And, and that's why I think the, the, the key on those numbers is there's no overlap. Those are, it's a very different market that was mobilized. Um, it will not become a Division One NC2A sport unless at some point the NC2A allows a student athlete to profit from their own personal image or likeness because right. you already have some of the world's best making money off of their role as an esports athlete uh, at a in, in their teens. Will so, the NCAA and this is a big part of the FBI scandal going on? Will they eventually allow you to market from your personal likeness? That's the Ed O'Bannon. Yeah, stuff. you know, if I was in a position to answer that question, I, I might be the most intelligent human being to ever walk the planet. That's okay, not, that's what, not my what if we put answer. Ken Halpin in charge? Yeah, no, um, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I personally absolutely believe that there is a space where a student um, should be free to profit from their name, image, and likeness because it does belong to them. And, and I think... Um, uh, gosh, th there was an actress I read about recently in an article, uh, went to Yale and had already appeared in movies prior to going to Yale, but she wanted to go to college. And so she went to college, but still continued to appear in major motion pictures. And, and guess what? Nobody died. <laughs> you know, she, she was able to attend college, have a great experience, but still be, make money from her ability to perform, um, in, a, in an entertainment sort of way. So I do believe there is absolutely space. I've talked a lot with my colleagues about this. Um, and uh, now, but that takes a lot of people to buy into. You know, I'm sure any AD at a Power 5 school would see that very differently because their athletes are put in front, their recruitable athletes are put in front of very different circumstances right. than ours are in a given situation where an athlete can comp appear in a commercial at their local car dealer, as an example. So it's complicated, but yes, I do believe... Uh, I would love to see it head that direction. And it would somewhat streamline the, some of the compliance angles, too. Wouldn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, obviously, you'd have to uh, monitor that. But when you make it above board, I think it's kind of easier to, to process and maybe takes away a whole set of compliance issues you might have. Yeah, that's where some of my teammates on my staff love to criticize me is, that's great, Ken. Your ideas are awesome in, in, in concept. But then when you actually try and bring it to practice, there's some – so, that, yeah, if we, if we made that a reality – that how do you police it? How do you manage it? How do you maintain some sense of structure? And that's where I've had I've had some colleagues encourage the idea, which I think is great, is ignore the concept of the word amateurism. Can we just create a set, whether it's I mean call it call it whatever you want. We just need a set of manageable criteria with which to work through this thing that we call college athletics, especially at the Division One level. And whether you call it pro or semi-pro or amateur is up to you, but conceptually, can we just agree upon some enforceable criteria that's fair to the athlete, that's fair to the school, that's fair to the governing body, that still moves this great 
entity forward, which is college athletics, in a positive way that continues to maintain its positive impact on others without leaving everyone feel like that, that, that a certain segment and the, the segment that's doing a lot of the work is, is getting taken advantage of. I know it's the big, it's a very common, um, it's a very common concept that's, that's out there right now. our bearded car cast with Mike Pacheco. I'm Dave Friedman. Winthrop Athletic Director Ken Halpin is with us. The NCAA basketball FBI scandal, the Condoleezza Rice-led committee report, that has been a huge topic. If you look into the crystal ball and see where the sport is in five years or in 10 years, do you see significant changes coming ahead? You know, it's funny. When I I, I will say I hope so. I, I When I speak or when I conceptually think about this, you know, I always say I want to be a part of this industry for several more decades. That means having to understand where it's going as opposed to clinging to where it's at. And so I try to have these conversations as much as I can. And, yes, I do anticipate we will see change. I know that there are some out there who will disagree with me, but but I, I know some, unless it's not all the change they want, they won't give credit for any change. And so some of the challenge for me is in, in a popular um, – media narrative, you hear really, you know, um, theatrical language about, you know, comparing it to slavery. I I think that's, um, I personally believe that's a really irresponsible analogy because these athletes work like what concept, in what other concept does the person who is enslaved work their entire life to get into that? I mean, name name a 15 year old athlete that wouldn't kill for a full scholarship right now at a major institution. Kids are growing up wanting to get into this. So they can't be, be that punished now. But to play devil's advocate, CBS and Turner are paying the NCAA a billion dollars a year for the NCAA tournament. And the star of that tournament is getting a scholarship, which certainly has value, but is nowhere close to the value that the universities and the the NCAA are making off of that. Right. And what, what I'm saying is I am in agreement that there is a world where that athlete, just like every other student, should be free to receive profit from who they are as a human being that their name is their name it belongs to them and so that's the piece that i agree with i'm not saying that there's not room for reorganizing and restructuring how the finances work Um, i like to remind everybody that there are a lot more student athletes than just the basketball and the football players so this conversation does apply to everybody absolutely we 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 do have to adhere to does every student athlete have to be traded the same accord well they don't (laughs) have No, they don't have to be traded the same, but we do have to maintain our ability to acknowledge a federal requirement, which is Title IX. And there are a lot of implications. That, and what I always say about Title IX when I get a chance to speak is um, that the tricky part with Title IX is that the threshold with which to initiate a lawsuit is a perceived inequity. That's a pretty simple threshold with which to take a case forward. Now, that doesn't mean that cases are coming forward left and right, but if I perceive an inequity, there is nothing stopping me from initiating a lawsuit. And and that's the piece I think that, that is going to leave every college with concern. There are some other pieces too, um, but but that's where, yeah, that's a federal law in place that, that was intended to move forward 
equitable opportunities in athletics. And progress has been made, and I think there's still progress that needs to be made. That doesn't mean that this concept can't coexist. But remember, and here's what I will say. This is just world according to Ken. Somebody being allowed to profit from their name and likeness is not the same as the institution paying them. I personally have no problem with with college athletics being a, a world where the institution doesn't pay the athlete, but the athlete is still not prevented from profiting from their own likeness on their own time in their own way. That that piece I think is fine. Um, I think there are, are ways to explore um, various hybrid models of that, and we, we can get more into it. Um, but at the same time, I'm just going back to some of the what I would consider theatricized um, analogies to try and get, get attention. I mean. I think th- that there are people who do want to see the power um, balance kept where it's at. I think there are people who want to see it to shift. I think there are people I, – I know I've, – I've spoken to sitting Power 5 ADs that do believe in some type of a shift, um, but, but we have a responsibility to do it the right way. I mean, everyone that I work with cares deeply about the athletes that we work with, but it's, it's not sustainable at the moment. And, and I guess I would say to borrow from Elon Musk, because the current model is not sustainable, it will by definition change. Well, and that's the exact point. There's a black market right now because it's not above board. We're not paying players. They can't have their own likeness. So the sneaker companies or the runners, the agents, someone is funneling money to the best of those student athletes, which is ugly and below boards and kind of this murky how do we eliminate that ugly side of it bring it above board so that everyone's playing on a similar playing field you know i i will not go so far as to pretend to have an answer to that one i mean i think the rice commission was was an assemblance of some of the most brilliant people in the industry and they have recommendations um i was not on that commission probably for a reason so i don't have (laughs) you you were busy no and it wasn't i don't i did not get that invitation um but what i what i will say is you know i think a similar analogy i I think the reason is we care now because the money got so big when the money wasn't so big we didn't care it's about the size of the money not the not the inequity in my opinion because if you think about it in youth sports today Every youth sports program sells a sign on the outfield fence for 500 bucks to a local community. That's that's generating revenue off the performance of a bunch of small children. No one has a problem with it because the size of the money isn't right. significant. If that suddenly somehow, if if and again, I, I think the point is is justified. The athletes that compete today generate those large amounts of money, but so do these kids. The reason I think everyone has a problem with it is because of how big it is. And when the bigger money gets, the more likely that eventually somewhere along the flow of money, somebody has an opportunity um, to make uh, an unethical decision. And I think that's part of what, what is bringing some of the issues to light. So as an athletic director, how do you deal with you have one program, men's basketball, that can appear on national TV, that can get a piece of that pie, yet you have to be fair to all of your other coaches and student athletes. How do you balance, yes, this one program probably has the greatest upside, but all these other people we've committed to at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say by by being honest about it, I mean, our strategic plan that we, that we released over the summer, last summer, is a big part of that. And, and we... We, we didn't just craft a mission statement because that's what you do. I mean, we put a lot of heart and soul into simplifying a, a powerful, intentional mission statement. So our mission statement is to positively shape the lives of people who will change the world. And so we continue now to work to hire people who believe it's their duty 
to influence people, young people, who will go on to positively shape the world in some way. That everyone that we touch here, that everyone we interact with, is going to make an impact on this planet. And that it's their responsibility to do so in a positive way. So when you keep that grand aspect, we have, we have people who work here who are passionate about that and care about that. And so how do we do that? We happen to do it through sport. We happen to interact, and sport is our outlet. And, um, you know, when it comes to the national visibility of basketball, we're just honest about it. We have conversations where um, the steps we can take to advance basketball puts us in a position where now the people who can write larger checks and support in larger ways will take our phone call. You know, those phone calls weren't being taken not too long ago. We have to demonstrate that we'll move forward in specific ways. And so, you know, you can't promise equality and inequity, but I also don't think it's fair to promise equality and, and, and perfect equity because life isn't fair and equitable. There are going to be things that happen in life that are unfair. What we're trying to teach our students here is how to manage those challenging situations that aren't fair and still overcome. We're trying to teach resilience. We're trying to teach grit. And we're trying to encourage our, our athletes to know that, that regardless of circumstance, they have a responsibility to make a positive impact on this planet as they go on from their time here at Winthrop. And how much of that and putting the whole mission statement together works in combination with you're competing with bigger schools, smaller schools, schools with different types of um, facilities. So, so how does Winthrop stand out amongst all those? Is that... It's almost like you planted that question. So in addition to our mission statement, we have a specifically, our vision statement was designed for a very specific reason. And our vision statement is to be the model Division One athletic department. So when, so when I say the model, the, the word model means we want others to look at us and emulate us in things that we can control. So as an example, like um, our budget is at a certain level. We can only control it to a certain extent. No matter how hard we work, we're not going to quadruple our budget by tomorrow. We don't control that. We do control how hard we work. We do control how much we care about our athletes. We do control how creative we try to be. We do control our effort, our energy, our attitude, the things that we control. We work to be an, a university that every other Division One school will emulate. So that if we do our jobs right, then um, people will look to send their interns and their, their rising stars to come work for us. And the schools at the Power Five will look to hire our people because they want a little bit of a slice of what we do here. We want to be seen as an overachieving brand that that demonstrates the model as to how to perform the things that you can control in Division One athletics. Controlling how hard you work means allocating your time, and we appreciate and sincerely believe that your time on the Bearded Carcast is very, <laughs> very well Absolutely. thought through. We're well, anytime you can talk about the you know strategic plan, you got to. That, you know, yeah, it's, that, again, it's like you planted it. <laughs> now. The strategic plan, I don't believe, addresses circling back to the big story in sports right now, which is gambling, which has not been legalized, but the door has been opened mm -hmm. to be legalized state by state, or Orrin Hatch is proposing some federal legislation. Can you imagine a day when someone can walk in the door at the Coliseum, get on their cell phone, and bet on or against Winthrop? I don't know. I mean, you talk to somebody in 1905 and say, could you imagine a day when alcohol is legal? Could you, you know, 1950s, could you imagine a day when marijuana is suddenly legal? You know, you know, 1989, can you imagine a day when gambling is legal in every – I mean, it, I – I could imagine almost anything could if you look help? at it the right way. Could it help attendance because people would be more interested in coming and betting on a game? Um, you know, I, I don't know if I've thought through it enough to, to give an affirmative answer to that question. Um, but, but believe me, I'm reading about it. I'm trying to think about it. It's no different than, you know, there are 
Um, there, I mean, I just listened to a, a podcast the other day from Tim Ferriss, who wrote a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. He wrote um, Tribe of Mentors, and he, he interviews some of the most fascinating people in life. And he interviewed a doctor who is actively exploring through um, um, APA-approved research, utilizing um, hallucinogenic drugs that we've typically saw as, seen as really bad and negative through the 70s um, to help people really genuinely overcome major mental disorders like PTSD. Mm. Um, and in very early trial controlled stages, demonstrating not just improvement, but complete release from things that the rest of us who've never experienced it could never even begin to understand. Um, that's a really controversial topic, even to start talking about it. But as you start to read about it and listen to it and, and understand that that highly qualified, brilliant doctors are actively researching it, you realize there might be something there. So to, to say that is there a world where sports gambling can be utilized in a uh, college athletic sporting event um, to, to generate revenue. It, that just doesn't feel, that doesn't feel good right now. I, I, I can't say, yes, I can see that world without something not feeling right. But you know what? Um, there was a day when people said you'd never sell alcohol at a, at a college basketball game either. And that's becoming more and more common. So. Well, that's and, a, and that's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because I believe I read in the last month, they've been, testing selling beer at the college world series mm -hmm. and i think they've been given a thumbs up now to sell beer at the final four or other sporting events seemingly the revenue is there and obviously there are a lot of safeguards they've been careful to have the correct, correct security and, and make sure it's safe and limit the correct amount and stop sales at a certain time where does that lie in terms of could we see that here in the near future? Yeah, it was only a month or two ago that the NC2A formally approved legislation allowing for the sale of alcohol at NC2A championship events. And to be clear, the NC2A never prevented alcohol sales at institutions. That's an institutional choice. Right. It's the championship events that the NC2A won't allow. So then what you come down to is not, is alcohol good for events, but is it alcohol good for universities? And that's a university decision. I, I, I've seen, I know universities um, that have trustees and stakeholders, um, and, and even at Winthrop we have this, who, who will, will refuse to ever associate with their school again if it ever even, you know, in any way associates with alcohol. We're, we, we're a little different. You know, we, we have a sponsor with, a, with um, uh, not just a local distributor, but a local um, brewer who's a Winthrop alum, who, who, who the, his vocation is craft brew. And I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I always joke like, you know, it's not uncommon to have a nice heavy stout for breakfast. Like, it's just different. Um, and, and it's something that's being researched. It's something that is being advanced academically. And, and I believe this is something there, somebody's going to be the first school to start an academic, if it's not there already, to start an ac academic degree to begin teaching you how to scientifically craft um, marijuana and various other legalized drugs, especially from a prescription standpoint. Um, you know, that's, that's part of evolving from illegal to weird to taboo to understood to normal i mean it, it it it's happened with other things it it can happen again with with some of these items would we ever sell alcohol at an event i think there's we have had discussions about at non-athletic events um we, we're exploring that world uh to see how that would go um we you know i think our foot in the water was our partnership with full spectrum who's our uh alum charles bergman started his brewery full spectrum very proud of that partnership and it's we have a lot of young alums, especially who love it and get excited about it, who see it. And, and so if nothing for us, it's, it's been a way to, to grow 
new friendships and new relationships in the community in a positive, responsible way, never allowing. Craft beer is not associated with getting as drunk as you can. Craft beer is about something different, no different than a wine connoisseur, or it's just something specific a lot of people do embrace. Um, Including you. I do. I do. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and so um, I do have an app on my phone, I say. I use more than Facebook and Twitter. It's called Untapped, so I make sure I track and rate uh, the various craft beers that I get a chance to try. What's the most recent one you've tried? My favorite one. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if I can say this on air, but it is, a, it is sold. It's out, of, um, it's out of Escondido, California. It's called Arrogant Bastard. It's a strong ale, and that's... That's, I literally had one last night. That's your so, go-to. Yes, it is. What have you tasted that you like that's new in the last month or two? Um, I have a coworker who's got a small batch out of the uh, Northeast area. Um, it's a New England style. Um, trying to remember the name of the brewery. Um, but anyways, there's some, some uh, stronger New England style IPAs that are really good right now. I think that's kind of the new entry into what I've been exploring recently. I recently uh, had a... Uh, Boston reference, right? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, the other way, uh, we were down at Disney, and okay. uh, they had Cigar City, uh, they had Highlight yes. IPA, which is really good. Yep. Highlight. I just, yep, I have uh, had one of those recently after a round of golf, so... Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good, because, you know, normally you associate IPAs, you think more of like Asheville or like the Northwest yep. or even... Yep. You know, a lot of well, for me, IPAs. so for me, when you talk about IPA, the first brand to really do it right, it's called Ninkasi. They're out of Corvallis, Oregon, where my wife grew up, and they were the first one to like try and out-hop everyone else. And so then for a while, there were a lot of brands in the Northwest trying to over-hop to your death, and then think most consumers got out hopped and so then it came back to about trying to find a balance or trying to find various approaches to it but Ninkasi is always the IP I always I it's for me I consider it the sort of the original approach to what made the IPA really really popular and then over popular for some have so, well, you been to many of the breweries in Charlotte here yeah yeah in my very first weekend here I had some friends took me on a tour of a few of them I went to um gosh where to go wooden robot I went to Sycamore yeah um I've been to Old Mac I've been to Noda um you know, they're, they're quite a few. They're popping up left yeah. and right. What do you like? Um, I Well, my friends make fun of me. I always say I have not – maybe maybe twice in my life have I tried a craft beer I didn't like. I'm the easiest judge in the world. I just love – I love the idea that there are people who passionately explore flavor in, in, in beer production. Yeah. And, I mean, people who do it take it very seriously, and, and I respect that. And I have very f- close friends from Oregon who just opened a brewery, so we, we helped them with a Kickstarter to get that started. I just, I, I mean, I think it's I think it it's a part of life that promotes responsible, um, you know, community. And, 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 I mean, I'll tell you what, you know, the, the people that uh, I see the most consuming craft beer, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but um, cyclists and distance runners, oh, yeah. you always the see them uh, all the time, especially trail running. Like, oh, yeah. Just, there's a lot of synergy, I think, with, with those two things. And so um, I think it's just it, it can be something different that, that we've embraced here. So what, what was your progression? So for me, you know, after college, it was, uh, you know, we had the domestic stuff. And then the first time, and then, granted, this is, I don't want to say heresy, because you know, Sam Adams is one of the first craft brewers. Now they're very institutional. Yeah, they're very, very, I, call, I don't call them a craft. No, but, but, but Sam, but when I was, you know, 22, 23 right, years old, right. Sam Adams was a craft beer. Yeah. And then so it went from that to, uh, and then I grew up in Boston, so it was the black and tan. So it yeah. was like Guinness and, and Bass Mix. And then and then it went more recently where I've kind of been on this IPA kick. Where yeah. it's just, and I still will do a stout from time to time or a yeah. Pilsner, but the IPA is kind of where I've kind of. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to describe evolution. So I didn't drink in college at all. I was didn't touch a drop. I was a Division three athlete. Was committed to, um, you know, committed to 
going to college, trying to graduate, um, spending time with my friends, getting involved in my church, and then didn't didn't have a drop until I got married. Um, and so really was slow kind of introduction into it. So where was your first beer? Where was it? It was a Mirror Pond uh, Pale Ale in Salem, Oregon at an Olive Garden. <laughs> And you just decided I'm going to have a beer today? Yeah. No, I mean, no, don't get me wrong. But prior to college, I'd had a, a small window of time where I'd, you know, gone there. I, I went, I came back away from it. So Got it. My first craft beer was a Mirror Pond in Olive Garden in Salem, Oregon. Do you, did you like it? Absolutely. Do you still like Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's still to this day the first craft beer I've ever tried. Okay. It so owns you went that, from that. It owns that. that place in my life. You went from that to where? Oh gosh, it's hard. It's hard to remember because it, it wasn't like I almost feel bad. It's like around around here. You know, I get this reputation like, oh, Ken loves craft beer. And I do. Like, it's, uh, I don't think I'm any different than anyone else who, who enjoys it. Um, it. It was really just kind of, you know, when you live in Oregon, you're just around it all the time. So I was very novice, if anything right. else, from a Pacific Northwest standpoint. Um, but, I, but I will say, um, I remember when I flew out to Charlotte, I flew out to Charlotte to meet with a donor when I worked at Eastern Washington University and Eastern Washington was playing at Davidson. So I came out to meet with the donor and go to the game. And I remember I had this mindset that the craft beer was just in the Northwest. It hadn't moved East yet. And I learned that I was wrong because I came to Charlotte and my first Charlotte based craft beer, I had a Sugar Creek pale ale at the airport in Charlotte. And I thought, Charlotte's a really cool place. I wonder if I, I need to get my wife here someday. And that was literally a year prior to interviewing out here. So I knew that box was checked. If I were to relocate, <laughs> I'd still be able to explore some new brands and, and experience that. You mentioned you were a D3 athlete. Uh-huh. You played a couple of sports, right? Yeah. So I went to the University of San Diego my freshman year. Um, it's, it's my fun almost story. I played football there. Um, I did not make the baseball team. I had a 30-second conversation with the still baseball coach, Rich Hill. It was great. He probably didn't remember it. He said, Ken, you're not good enough to play for me. <laughs> I said, thank you. <laughs> um, but uh, So a transfer after that so I could still play two sports. Went to Willamette University um, and played uh, football, baseball, and it was the best decision I ever made. Because, cause, I mean, to some extent, you know, you play D3 because you still want to maximize your athletic performance. You just don't have the athletic talent. That and, and maybe the, maybe the height, maybe the size, maybe the speed of some of those who. Which were, was it in your case? The height, size, and speed. Well, I struck out a lot. And that's <laughs> just, in baseball, that's a bad thing. I don't yes. know if you watch yeah. a lot of it's it. It's good if you're a pitcher. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, if you hit a lot of home runs. So, but but at Willamette, you know, it's a small private liberal arts institution, and so I got to have a, a spectacular, world class education, a very challenging one, where I I struggled at first, and and I had to go through my own kind of sink or swim moment. But I'll never forget, and that's that I, I remember to this day. I had a, a professor there. Um, his name is Stasinos Stavrianis. He is Greek. In fact, he was a Greek Olympic swimmer. We all call oh. him Stas, and he was my ex phys professor. And I could show you the exact, I emailed him this, I could show you the exact table we were sitting at uh, having lunch in the Gaudi Commons. And I had said, Stas, I have a question for you. Do you ever think I could get a PhD? And he looked at me, he put his fork down and he said, Ken, my answer to your question is an unhesitating, unequivocal yes. It has nothing to do with how smart you are. It has everything to do with your persistence, your ability to, to continue to, to, uh, continue through administrative loopholes, your stick to to outlast whatever experience it is and to stick with it until you get done. And uh, it's a moment that really impacted me and I never lost it. So I was, even though I, you know, struggled, I mean, I ended up graduating around a 3-3, I think. I didn't come in with a 3-3. Um, 
I never thought of myself as very smart, but I realized it had nothing to do with how smart I am. It has to do with what a good student I could be. And so if I could just outlast others, if I could pay attention longer, I'd have a chance to, to do that. And I was able to be successful. So he was the first person I emailed when I finished my school. And you teach. Uh -huh. So you got your doctorate and now you teach. I, I don't know how many athletic directors in the country are also teaching a class and you co-teach it with Dr. Mahoney, the uh -huh. president of the school. If we sat in on that class, what would we see? Um, you would see a lecture one uh, on one day of the week from President Mahoney on historical topics that he's lectured on for uh some 20 years of his career and then on the other days you'd see me starting off with an email about current events what's just the newest like literally today we would talk yeah. about sports gambling and what does that mean and what do you think as a student and then we would intersect that with um, what's going on in the industry today what our athletic director counterparts are thinking of um, and really trying to marry and blend what, what we say is we take historical um, uh, occurrences we you know, take those in light of today's current events and we use that we encourage our students to try and anticipate what the future will look like and if you're trying to go on and be a part of this industry you need to anticipate where the industry is going so you can help shape it and influence once you get your opportunity so when you were with stas and you asked about the phd was your thinking then that you wanted to go into teaching or be an athletic director or did you even then think at some point you wanted to merge the two no i just wanted to be a part of school like I, and i still that's that's i think for me I, I consider myself a lifelong student. It's still why I it's still why I read. So I get this I get the question asked this way a lot. You know, you wanted to be an AD. Why'd you get a PhD? Did you need to get a PhD to be an AD? And um, while to some extent I think for this job it was a differentiating it, it, it made a difference. Um, I really never went after the PhD because of what job I was going to get. Right. And I, I'm I'm a firm believer in the difference and the impact in my life because of the educational experience. The people that I was exposed to, the diverse ideas and backgrounds, I mean, my, my doctoral experience did so much to open my awareness that there are people in this world who have lived lives I can't even fathom, and that I've lived a life that's really not that challenging, and I have not really had to overcome much, and I really need to slow down when I have strong opinions about something, because there are a lot of perspectives I know for a fact I've never considered. So if anything, it's really strengthened uh, my desire to proactively shut my mouth and my mind so that I can listen to somebody. And as opposed to preparing my response when people talk, really try and spend time hearing what someone else has to say and considering how that impacts any opportunities we could potentially grow towards together. So I, I just, for me, it's really about the educational experience. I joke with my wife, I mean, I think, uh, be curious about getting a JD as well, but she's like, I'm not allowed to go <laughs> any more school or med school. <laughs> but I know, yeah, but I, I will like, um, uh, wasn't able to do it this semester. I do want to take a writing course here at Winthrop. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to explore another language. I mean, I just think mm -hmm. the lifelong learner aspect yeah. is, is the, is one of the reasons I love the job I'm in. Cause it's so much about what we're doing. We do college athletics as well. We have access to so much new information to right. challenge, challenge our own frameworks and our own mindset. Um, that's, I just love being challenged to think differently than I think right now. Is your class difficult or easy? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, when <laughs> Dr. Mahoney grades the final, the final is difficult. <laughs> um, I try to be hard on the papers, but I, I know that I'm, I'm not quite as experienced at it. Um, he, he's great. He does great at that. Um, I do think the class is engaging. Um, and what I always say is, you know, I don't teach full time. I've got other things I got to do. So, you know, so this year we had a class of just about 50 students. And so I, you know, I tell them, remember when you write something, 
I know you don't like writing papers, but if you write something, I have to read it times 50. So just be interesting, you know, and I try to encourage, we both try to encourage, you know, put your critical thought into the paper. Don't respond to what you think wants to be said. Respond with what you right. know is out there and what you've experienced. Um, and so it's probably not the most difficult one out there, but but we hope that it's engaging and it's challenging in a way that really encourages that the bridge for you to the next thing you want to do in life. How, how many students would you say are general students and how many are athletes, student athletes? Um, our first semester we taught it, I'd say it was 80-20, 20% student athletes, 80% non-student athletes. Uh, this last semester we were probably closer to 40-60, 45, 55, where the student athletes were almost half. Um, so we had a lot more student athletes in it this year. I think there's a lot more awareness of it this year. Yeah. Had some graduates, some undergraduate. We even had for two for two years in a row now. We've had a handful of community members audit the class just because of their interest in it. They heard about it and they want to come and experience it. How Before, important is? is uh, sorry, David, not to cut you off, but uh, the reason why I asked you that was because how important is it for you as an athletic director to have that communication and interaction with non-student athletes? Because a lot of times you yes. kind of get kind of get caught up in what's yep. what's in your forest, but now. You, the, the the whole general population. You know, it's it it's weird. It's I don't know if I can describe it, but I don't think it's different. I mean, they're all students in that classroom. Um, yeah, they, I know some of them happen to be athletes, but but we even try to tell them. You know, when we do our orientation on athletes, we try to encourage them, like, you're no different than every student on here. You're a student here. You just happen to also compete in Division One athletics, so you have an additional burden you've placed on your time and your energy. But everyone else here has something too. You're just different. Right. You're not more than. You're not less than. So when we're in the classroom, um, the reason teaching is, is valuable to me, I do believe that I can bring value to the academic experience from my role as a practitioner. Um, I do believe that my experience trying to maintain lecture challenges me as a practitioner. It strengthens me as a practitioner. Um, and so I think those two pieces go hand in hand. But then, and this is President Mahoney and I both, believe the reason it's powerful for us is because it gives us a direct pulse on at least part of the student experience here and if we ever lose sight of why we're here it's going to be really difficult to to lead the way we we're supposed to lead um, and that's with the student athlete first and, and foremost every day so this gives us a chance to literally interact with a small segment of our students um, and and re continue to remind us of what this institution exists for as we wrap up what is the next big thing in college athletics, whether it be something, an obstacle that you face or something really exciting, a new spectrum or a new area of emphasis? What, what is the thing we'll be talking about in a year or three years from now? Oh, man. Um, I don't know. I think uh, every athletic director is trying to explore that question, not so that they can have an answer, but so that they can be best prepared for whatever is coming. Because I'm fairly certain every one of us has a guess, None of, and, and maybe 5% will be accurate, but that 5% doesn't realize they're going to be accurate. We have to be prepared. Here's what I'll call it. Um, we use a phrase sometimes, innovative agility. We want to utilize innovation in a way that maximizes our agility when the landscape changes. Mm -hmm. If, it, if the one thing I will tell you is going to happen in the next five to ten years, there will be several massive changes that move the needle really fast, and none of us know what they are. You know, the the impact of cryptocurrency on our country might be nothing. It might be it might change the way we live. The impact of sustainable travel, sustainable fuel. Um, you know, there, I I read an article about a, a company that Elon Musk is involved with, where there's an actual 
exploration, not of creating artificial intelligence, but actually attaching artificial intelligence, literally interfacing with your brain. It's oh, called yeah. brain-machine interface, where you access the cloud directly from your brain. So instead yeah. of interacting with AI, you actually become an extension of it. Yeah. The, the, 60 the minutes a piece on the that. The implications of that, if it comes to reality, I, I'm, there's, I'm not near smart enough to even guess, but I... I'm fairly certain it's going to change the way we live. Yeah. So going back to our role, certainly is how you defend ball screens. <laughs> <laughs> so so our our responsibilities. How do we maintain relevance for the athletes that we're responsible for, for the students that we're responsible for? How do we best prepare them to make a difference in this world, knowing that we don't know what the world's going to look like when they enter it? We have to maintain agility with the various yeah. innovations that we're going to experience. Read and react. Yes. See, you, if I just – I know the problem. You keep looking at your watch. I just ramble way too much when you ask a question. You could just say it much more quickly and succinctly for me. That's the beauty of a podcast. It yeah. can go as long as you want. <laughs> well, Ken – it's been a pleasure. Uh, great. I know we'll have more conversations yeah. like this, but it's always fun to kind of check in with you and get your thoughts. Absolutely. No, it's a pleasure and um, love getting a chance to make time for it. Um, these conversations are fascinating. I think about all the time. Rarely do I get to, My wife doesn't like hearing my opinions about this stuff uh, unless it's the right circumstances, so not a lot of places to just banter about it. As opposed to the long-time listener, first-time caller. Ding. You're appearing on a show <laughs> that you've never heard before. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 will, I will tune in at some point, but I'm, when I'm driving, there's just still so much out there, um, access to just stuff that I've never even What's thought about. What's your go-to thing? If there's one thing you have, an hour or half hour, what do you listen to? Well, I haven't. if I'm in the car um, and I don't have a book on tape dialed in, I will um, – right now it's Tim Ferriss. He still has mm -hmm. quite a bit of stuff I listen to. Um, when I drove – when I moved here, I listened to Atlas Shrugged. And the answer to the question is no. The drive from Washington – to South Carolina is not long enough to make it all the way through Atlas Shrugged an <laughs> audiobook. But um, no, I just it it just depends. It depends on what's in front of me. And I'm a big believer in not trying to read so fast that you can amount a stack of books. I try yeah. to I'm I'm fine with reading slowly and Digest ingesting things digesting and, it. And and letting it letting it impact mm -hmm. the way that I evaluate decisions. Yeah. So so it's 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 hard to answer but whatever's out there. That's how I read Born to Run Springsteen, but I'm still still kind of chewing away at it, but I wanted to take my time with it cuz there's Absolutely. so much so much in there. Yeah, don't be don't be don't succumb to the pressure to put another book on your shelf. Like yeah. let it have its impact on you. Particularly when it's something as impactful as Bruce Springsteen's. Well, program. I was going to say that's what the dollar bookstore is for. You can just buy a bunch of books and throw them on your bookshelf if you want to if you want to impress people. Yeah. But we uh, we will do this again because we want to uh, of course the the premise of this is we drive to Winthrop games and Yeah, David we got to drive to a game so with you. So we got to drive to a game with you. We'll record the conversation and we'll, uh, we'll release it in. as a, another episode of the Bearded Car. I like it. All right, thank I, will, you, I promise to have a beard that day still, too. Okay, well, maybe I will, too. It'll be in the fall, so maybe maybe it'll make its return. You can join us here on the Bearded CarCast, at Bearded CarCast on Twitter, and don't forget to follow along with email. You can send us an email. We didn't do the mailbag today, but uh, we certainly are starting to pile those up, so you can send us an email, beardedcarcast at outlook.com. So for Ken Halpin, Dave Friedman, I'm Mike Pacheco. Thanks for listening. Episode 24 of the Bearded CarCast.